I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers play with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygas, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! This is the Roll for Initiative podcast. We are on volume number three, issue number 149. DM Vince sitting with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. And DM Hanging Chad. Yo, how are you? All right. <laughs> We're back for another episode. This, this week we have a special guest on, but we'll get to that a little bit later. First, uh, Chad, tell us a little bit about the last convention you were just at. People are dying to know. Yeah, well, I was at Nexus Game Fair about two weeks ago. Had a very good time there. Played a lot of games. Uh, I think I was running games like a Dreamlands adventure for Call of Cthulhu, a Gangbusters adventure, a Top Secret adventure, and I think there was one more, but it's top of my head. I can't remember which one that was. Oh yeah, one for Chill uh, by Pacemaker, uh, Pacemaker <laughs> by Pace Setter, Pacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was a really good time, and while I was there, I even uh, had a chance to uh, sit and talk with Merle Rasmussen, the creator of Top Secret, the original Top Secret. We talked for a couple hours and and uh, came up with a really good interview, which you can listen to if you tune into the Dead Game Society podcast. Cheap pop. There you go. Got to push it. <laughs> but yeah, it was a really good time, and I mean... One thing that everybody walked away from that convention saying was they couldn't believe it was the first convention for Nexus because the hotel sold out and the games. It was just – it was a really good, well-organized event. I, I heard almost no complaints about it the entire time I was there. So, yeah, it was a great time. It was the first convention. I thought Nexus has been around for a while. No, this was their first one, Nexus in Milwaukee, the Nexus Game Fair. Now, the people who uh, that organized it, one of which uh, one of one of the backers behind it is in fact uh, Colin, uh, one of my co-hosts on the Day Society podcast. But the guys really doing the organization behind it used to be part of the group that did the organization behind GaryCon. So they had a lot of experience in, in running a convention already, so there were really no hiccups. Great time. That's good. You hate going to a convention, and it's just like you know, you're running around not sure what to do because it's disorganized, and no one knows what's going on. There's no events. You know. So it's glad to see that a first-time convention was up there and looking very professional, and there were no hiccups, of course. So good to know. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. 
So, um, do you meet anybody else there, or that was pretty much your your? Well, I met I met Al Snow, the WWE or former WWE wrestler, and got my picture taken with him. I also had a chance to have drinks one. Uh, I think it was the final night. Michael and Colin and I had drinks with Zeb Cook. That was awesome. He talked a lot about his experience writing for Star Frontiers, and hopefully. There'll be an interview coming forth with him pretty soon. That would be really nice. I'm trying to think who did I meet. I mean, I met, there are so many of the, oh, I got to play a uh, board game with uh, Frank Menser. That was really fun. And I, oh, when I first got there, this was actually kind of funny. I had, I had literally just taken my, my luggage out of my car. I hadn't even gotten into the hotel yet. And I, somebody call my name so i look over and sitting in this car these two older hippie looking dudes (laughs) listening to led zeppelin very loudly and it was of course tim cask and frank mincer calling me over to their car so i could hear tim's new remastered led zeppelin (laughs) that was awesome so i hung out with them before i even got into the hotel Outside of that, you know, I, I got to meet, I got to hang out with old friends of mine, people that had played in my game in the past and were there and they played in my games again. And I talked to, uh, I talked to Harold Wisconsin Johnson at one point was the organizer for Gen Con years ago. And he's always fun to talk to. He, he did a lot with TSR and he's just a really nice guy, but yeah. That was pretty much the time that I had there. A lot of gaming, a lot of fun, a few drinks, good times. So no pre-recorded Dead Game Society podcast live from the convention? Well, yeah. If you tune in to episode seven, then you'll hear the interview that I did with Merle Rasmussen. Well, that was just you. It wasn't the whole group, was it? Right. That was just me. I'm, but I tend to do most of the interviews. The special interview episodes tend to be me. And then we have the regular episodes that have Michael and Colin on it. Hmm. OK. So there was no mm-hmm. live reporting from your bedroom looking out the window? No, didn't really have time to do anything like that because I was running I was running four different games and then there was the interview and that took a couple hours. There's I they I was hopping pretty much most of the time that I was there. You ran Checkpoint Charlie, right? I ran one I, I did. I ran my uh, Checkpoint Charlie being the backdrop that I created for Top Secret. We did a run uh the players had to go into Cuba. Cuba. Uh, in 19 Cuba in 1960 following the Cuban Missile Crisis. Apparently, one of the missiles had not been removed. And so they were part of a special operations commando group that had to sneak into Cuba and neutralize the remaining missile, Oh, that's which a- was a lot of fun. Yeah, they got to deal with a, it was called the Kozlov Doctrine, uh, based off of a guy in real history named, I think his name was Sergei Kozlov. He, he was a member of, of the ruling party, uh, communist party, and and he had an actual doctrine that said, you know, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, that they would no longer allow foreign countries to hold any of their nuclear missiles without their direct control. In the adventure, the party actually finds that they're in a race to take this thing out, but they're also 
they're com almost competing in a way with another commando group from Russia because Castro did not want to give up the missiles. I mean, that was actually what happened. He didn't want to give up the missiles. He was very irritated with the Soviets for making him, for taking the missiles from his country. And so he ends up secretly keeping one of the missiles and they find out about the states, you know, the, the NATO finds out about it, the Warsaw Pact finds out about it, and you get two different commando groups trying to infiltrate Cuba and not exactly working together. So a race against so, kind of race against each other. Sounds pretty cool. Right. One group is trying to recover it, the other one's trying to neutralize it. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun. It was it was a good it was a good time. And then we did the chill game was called Murder on the Moors, and it was more of a whodunit. The uh, party all shows up at this kind of forlorn mansion owned by this real not very nice old rich guy who invites all these people uh, for his birthday party, and then turns out these are all people he doesn't like because uh, for various reasons, every one of the players had their own backstory on why they didn't like the old man and the old man dies and it becomes a whodunit, who, who murdered him. So there, if you've ever seen the old uh, 1980s movie uh, with Peter Sellers, it was called Murder by Death. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's, it's really, a, it, it's a little bit like that. A little bit like Clue, I guess you'd say. Cool. Yeah, so it was fun. It was fun. We, a lot of games, a lot of fun. And did uh, uh, Michael run his usual uh, uh, Marvel Kiss games and everything like that? And... He ran. He ran Kissastrophe, cool. in which this time he did not come in the full Gene Simmons battle oh. destroyer armor, uh, but he did come as a Kiss roadie. <laughs> which was pretty cool. He looked he looked like a homeless guy practically at the table. And then, of course, he also ran the uh, Cthulhu Love Boat Adventure where he dressed up as Captain Steubing, and he ran his Nightmare on Sesame Street. So there was a table full of people, including uh, including uh, uh, Peter Sullivan, who – not Peter Sullivan, Sullivan – I why am I getting his first name wrong right now? Anyway, uh, he, he was one of the players, and he was he was actually the uh, one of the people behind the original Chill game, and, and they all had hand puppets from Disney. It was uh, it was really kind of fun. That sounds odd. I would have liked to have seen that game being played. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it's it always draws a crowd of people. Uh, yeah, Stephen Sullivan. Why was I, I – anyway, if you're listening, Stephen, sorry about that. I just – my mind was playing tricks on me. But it, it was Stephen Sullivan. Anyway, but yeah, the, he always gets a crowd of people who stand around his table, not just the players. But then you got another layer of people behind them. They're all taking photos. <laughs> I always thought that, that was kind of funny. Uh, Colin ran several games as well. He ran his uh, Call of Cthulhu game based around World War II. And we always laugh. We talk about it on the Dead Game Society podcast, too, because we just he, he came up with this creature he calls the Humanzy. <laughs> and, and so we, we love joking about Humanzies now. But there were Humanzies and that that had a lot of same time. 
Collins games tend to be also take a more serious bent in many ways like my own and and the players were really into that and I played in one of Collins games we did a uh we did a basic um we did a mincer edition game they got to use the uh the big battle rules you know for armies and, and that was fun I, my character died probably not halfway through but you know, hey, that happens. He was nice enough to give me another character later on for the big battle. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a great time. Great time. Yeah. Okay. And if anybody's interested in a, in going to the next Nexus Game Fair, they can always go to www.nexusgamefair.com to find out more information. It'll probably be even bigger than this one. And of course, there's also Gamehole coming up in November. And if you're interested in that one, that's the one that Alex Kamer, who I interviewed for the RFI show a while back, he'll be running the second Gamehole convention. And that takes place in, in Madison, Wisconsin. And you can go to that website also. They have one. It is www.gamehole.com. That almost sounds like a commercial advertisement. Yeah. I know. I'm getting pretty pretty good at, yeah. at, at putting the putting this information out. Yeah. Next we're going to be hearing Chad like, if you want to find your love connection, dial one <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you know it's that. To <laughs> <laughs> find your gaming love. There'll be two people in a bathtub rolling dice. <laughs> no, they always end that one. What is that? I don't even know what that what that product's name is. But they always have. They always end it. You know, they always have the middle aged couple looking longingly into each other's eyes, and then at the end they show two people in a bathtub holding hands, or in two bathtubs holding hands. I always thought that was a rather silly commercial. I don't I, think I've ever seen that one, but all right. I don't think I'm really? up that late at it's night. It's on TV all the time. I think Chad's like, watching up, up All Night on USA too much. Right. No, it's it's on TV. It's like Spariva or something like that, I think, is the I name of the drug product. Spariva, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's one of those commercials, you know, where at the end they say, you know, Spariva may cause temporary side effects, like it, death. It's a one-minute commercial with 45, minutes of, 45 seconds of disclaimer. One of those, pretty much, yes. Yeah. And then no, when you, sounds... yeah, then when you hear the side effects, you're like, actually, the side effects sound pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'll get it for the side effects. Yeah, that's it's the cool. one. You know, they always say when the moment's right. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. And in one percent of people, may cause death. It's like what? <laughs> oh, that that's not a good side effect. No, it's like really. Why would you put that on the market? <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> Matt, so what are the rest of you guys been up to? Let's go to Matt. What have you been doing, Matt? Well, I managed to get in a play of uh, Fortress America. Me and my uh, group, we've been having a grudge battle with Fortress America. First time. Oh, that's we, an awesome. Yeah, we were playing the Fantasy Flight version. The uh, first time we played, I was the U.S., and I emerged victorious, lasting 10 rounds. So we had a rematch. And we were playing, and in the middle of it, we're playing at about 8 o'clock at night when the power goes out at my friend's house in his basement. So we proceed to light up candles and play around candlelight Fortress America because we must finish this game, and I end up losing. So I called that, no, we, get it, we have to put an asterisk on this loss. I lost due to power outage. I could not properly see the board. Uh-huh. So 
that led to our third, the tiebreaker rematch. At which point, we played, and I emerged victorious again because we actually had power. So now they're trying to make it best three out of five. At which point, I'm like, no, we need to bring out the old, original Game Master Series Fortress America. Because there are differences in the game from that in the Fantasy Flight version. Like, the cities are rearranged, and there's like a few other subtle differences. The map's a little different. So Who was playing in America? I was. So USA ah. merged victorious twice. Yeah, that's hard, actually. In that game, whenever I played it, America never won because uh, it's kind of like Axis and Allies. It's kind of like playing Germany in Axis and Allies. Right, you either win... Well, Pretty soon, everybody's surrounding you. Well, the key with this game is, remember, it's a battle of attrition, and if you can make it past turn six... The enemy forces no longer get reinforcements. So if you can hold out that long, you can cause them to collapse pretty quick. It's just having your defense set up to bend, not break. There were many times the game was really close. Like, they would take... You'd have to take 18 cities to win the game. Uh, There was one turn, they took 19. So on my turn, I had to take two cities back, and I kept doing that. And on the final turn, we were on turn eight. I they had twenty cities. No, they had twenty-one cities. I had to get them down to less than eighteen before the end of my turn. And I got three cities, and we had a battle, and it was and it was just a big battle of attrition. And it came down to one infantry on both sides, just rolling dice. First hit wins the game, and I I got the hit, oh, wow. and I won. So. Cool. Yeah, you know, it's almost the opposite with Axis and Allies, because if you're playing Germany, you start off with more money practically than anyone. Uh, but you really kind of have to you kind of have to get yourself set to win really early right. on in the game while Germany is so strong. Right. The, the key is you have to blitz uh, Moscow and take cause Russia to fall as quickly as possible. It's usually best to go through the uh, one Russian territory that's on the north, the edge of the North Sea and send your mm-hmm. some transports and subs blitz up. Don't go through the Caucasus. Go up around. It's like Karelis, I think. You go up through there into Moscow, not through like the big wall of infantry and through the Ukraine and the mountains. So you're saying don't attack Russia where they're strongest. Right. <laughs> Yes, yeah, basically an interesting tactic. Yes, basically Operation Barbarossa is a bad idea no matter wh- what you play it in. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go listeners, if you ever do want to conquer Russia, remember not to attack them straight on. Yes. You're probably best to start inside Russia and work outwards. <laughs> Because everyone who's tried that direct path through the Ukraine into Moscow has failed horribly. Yeah, it didn't work too well for Napoleon either. No, no. It's just one of those repeating things that keeps happening and no one ever learns. But anyway, that is my Axis and Allies slash Fortress America advice for this week. Yay. All right. So, Vince, what have you been up to? Uh, I was actually playing in my bi-weekly game of first edition. Uh, got two new players that have just joined my group that have never played role-playing games in their life. They are gamers making the transition over from the computer 
age world to the role playing age world. So they seem to have a seem to have had a great time because they re- didn't realize that they can do whatever their imagination limited them to. They were kind of just in the beginning, kind of sitting there quietly until they realized. I said to them, "What do you want to do?" And they were like, "Well, I don't know. What can I do?" I said, "Well, you're only limited by your imagination, really." Then they really started getting into like doing crazy stuff, jumping off walls and trying to do kicks and anything under the sun. Uh, I was letting them try just so they can see how flexible a role-playing game is tabletop-wise versus a boring old computer game with graphics. So they seem to have had a lot of fun. They'll be coming back next time again. Cool. They can't wait. So I've recruited two new people into our world. Very cool. Nice. Very, Very cool. Very good. That's and my play-by post game is still going strong with the Foramites from uh, who who listened to Roll for Initiative. That's we're still having a lot of fun. Oh yeah, that's right. You were doing that. I forgot about that. Yeah, they're in a they're in the Welkwood. For if you check out the box set for Greyhawk, you'll see where the Welkwood is. It sits kind of south of Hamlet, but in my world, it's inhabited by more. Uh, I guess you'd say like the Fey. Except, which was fun because I got to pull out the monster manual and start pulling out all the different fairy creatures. But I run them kind of like not, you know, I don't run them as cutesy. I run them the way that they originally were in like the old, old Celtic folklore and all that, you know, where basically they were, they could be quite dangerous and scary. Yes. Mm-hmm. The baby kidnapping, curse wheeling. Changelings, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Groovy. Anyway, so that wraps that up. Let's just head into our sage advice and get uh, some emails and even voicemails going. Sage advice. All right, sage advice this week. We have some. Uh, we have a voicemail and an email. If you'd like to send in your voice comments, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, or maybe a game you're running, or you just want to generally say hi, you can dial five seven zero. 865-4210, the hotline. Uh, accessible or any, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Don't worry, you're not disturbing anyone by calling it because it's just a voicemail line. Except that so, one time you answered. Yeah, except the one time that I happened to be sitting right in front of the phone and answered it and was like, hello, and the person's like, oh, oh, click. <laughs> <laughs> they were frightened and, you know, I apologized to that person, so they didn't expect that to happen. It was kind of funny, though. But yes, there's no one actually standing by unless obviously I'm there. Uh, so yeah, dial that up or you can uh, go write up an email, staff at gmail.com and send us your questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, uh, praise. We take it all. Uh, or you can go to our website, rrfipodcast.com and check on, uh, click on, excuse me, contact us and I'll give you a little contact form. You just fill out the information, sends the email. Or you can go on Facebook and find us, RFI Podcast. Or you can go on to G+. We have our own little G+, community, RFI Podcast. You can leave comments there as well. We are everywhere, even on Twitter, but we don't really use it. So it's just there for show announcements and, you know, that type of stuff. So our first voicemail, we'll get right to that right now. Hello, it's Team GM. This is GM Steve here in Texas, and just got through gagging after uh, thinking about DM Christie's last appearance on the show. 
but in serious note, wanted to uh, wanted to call and say really appreciate the ongoing work that guys are putting in, and uh, just wanted to give some suggestions maybe for some future shows because I know you're up to about 145, and uh, you know maybe it would be a good idea to start going back and uh, you know on a maybe doing a best of show, maybe the best of the top 10 or top 25 shows, take out some of the the bits and pieces of the shows that we did or that you guys did, you know, show one through 10, shows 10 through 20, something like that, because I think you put together some nice compendiums for people who just recently joined the, uh, the podcast as listeners. But also, now I was thinking of some other things, maybe starting highlighting on some of the, uh, the modules. I know that you've done that in the past on several occasions, but uh, especially really like the slave board stuff that you did. But again, trying to maybe piece together some of the modules you haven't done yet and go through reviews of those. And then also, uh, you know, maybe invite some listeners to uh, give a little bit of a plug in and, and, you know, maybe have them call into the show, uh, leave a message and give a little bit of a bio, you know, when they start playing the, the D&D, uh, you know, how they got into it, other games they played, et cetera. Um, and also, finally, I guess the other thing I really enjoyed in the past was when you did the uh, the Marvel Superhero Show and some of the shows on some related other other topics. And wouldn't mind hearing some things like uh, like Star Frontiers, which is another one that was a contemporary to uh, uh, AD and things like that. So anyway, keep up the good work. Hope all is well, and uh, appreciate the good work on your end. Bye. Oh, thank you very much. I'm sorry that you had. Here in crispy but uh yeah yeah seems to be an ongoing theme with crispy's voice and uh, people listening to it people vomiting so uh yeah we know, some type of thing matt wouldn't that be kind of cheap but yeah. <laughs> totally tv switch right and it would also be a lot of work uh, a lot of listening to like ourselves because while we have show notes of what we uh, talked about we don't necessarily have like when you see the uh, TV shows and they have like the highlighted specific moments snapshots in time yeah I wasn't really good at cataloging those I can tell you what we talked about as for that specific point of not so much yeah and I just pretty much did the same thing before you did and we just just handed it over to you so right it's a, so here's the thing listener participation if a listener wants to go and put a best of clip show do it, and we'll listen to it, and if it kicks butt, by golly, we'll put it out there. So let's... Matt, so, in the buck. Yes, exactly. It's a fine tradition in audio podcast production. Yeah. Would be totally cheesy of us for an 80s-based show to totally cheese it and do like they did back in the 80s and do the best of show. Well, we do the and, intro like it's a real episode, then we just flash back to the old stuff and never actually... Yeah, like if, yeah, like do, 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 do. like the Cosby Show or the uh, Golden Girls or something when they just sat around and talked about every episode that happened that season. Do you remember when? And remember when Cleo robbed a car? <laughs> yeah. Remember Cleo? What is it? Remember when Theo did a drive-by? Oh, that was a funny one. <laughs> no, yeah, but we could do more modules. Star Frontiers, Chad. When do you have that slated for your Dead Game Society? Well, we'd like to get that one coming up here pretty soon. I mean, we're trying to do things chronologically, but with the interview episodes, we don't do those so much chronologically because when you get a when you get a great interview, you can't really <clears throat> excuse me, you can't really 
you want to get that on the air as quickly as possible. But but for our regular you know episode, roundtable episodes, we are trying to go fairly chronologically, and we're the next one slated should be Boot Hill. Okay, and then after that, it's probably going to be Gamma World, Metamorphosis Alpha, and then following that, then it's kind. of well, it may be Traveler after that, you know, uh, but we are working our way up to Star Frontiers. And, and like I said, when we do get to the Star Frontiers one, I'm, I might even, you know, cross my fingers, but maybe we'll even have some words from Zeb Cook. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk to him here on the show and then give you a, a precursor to what, what's more to come for your show. Yeah. Why not? Sure. Everyone keeps asking for it, so. Yeah, well, you know, getting all three of us together to record is kind of like herding cats, but, you know, we we are getting together more regularly. It's just that we wanted to get those interview episodes out because, like I said, you you get a great interview. Somebody's nice enough to to do an interview with you. you. You really want to get their interview out as quickly as possible because I don't think it's really fair to the person who agrees to do an interview for your show to then have their interview put on the pile, so to say, while you cover other things. The BBC schedule release of once every six months or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. We've been getting our last couple episodes have been actually pretty much every two weeks and I already have another episode in editing right now. So as soon as that's edited, we'll have another one out. And the, the Merle interview came out about two weeks ago and, and we have another interview coming up as a matter of fact with Ernie Gygax. And I just need to get the editing done on that. Cool. Well, at least you're doing better. Yeah. You're doing better than critical wits was doing for a while, but they're banging them out now too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're, I, I like to think we're getting back on target for our schedule, you know, about every other, about every other week, you know, maybe every three weeks or so. Mm. All right, cool. Well, let's head to our email here. This one comes from the immortal DM. Ooh. Uh, greetings. I started listening to RFI this past winter while digging my way out of the record snowfall up here in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm working on listening to all of your archive shows. Maybe you've covered my question already. I've been playing D&D for nearly 30 years with most of the same people. The majority of the time we play editions that shall not be named. We have also exclusively played in homebrew campaign settings with homebrew modules. You've convinced me that it is time to return to our roots. I'm going to run a first edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons campaign so that we can experience the great 1E modules that most of our other gamers... Most of the other gamers from our generation have experienced. I realize that there is a huge hole in my gaming cred. So my question is, what are the essential modules that every old school gamer should go through? I really enjoy the podcast, especially the Creature Feature Theater. Keep up the great work. So, going around. Chad, starting with you. The essential modules you should have for first edition. Uh, the ascent modules for first edition essential, what you should definitely have. Oh, the essential. I was going to say, I'm not really familiar with the ascent module line, but, uh, yeah, the essential ones for first edition. If I were going to start up a first edition campaign, which I've done on several occasions, I think you can, there are a couple choices where you can start from. You can obviously go with in search of the unknown, in which case I would then lead it into, or 
uh, vice versa, probably keep on the borderlands with a lead in into In Search of the Unknown because there is an actual cave and keep on the borderlands when you're on your way to the Caves of Chaos. They have they have one called the Cave of the Unknown. I always thought that'd be a great lead in to In Search of the Unknown. And that's that's a quintessential introductory uh, couple of modules for first edition AD&D. But there are other ones, other routes you could take. You know, a great one that I think is underused for for starting a campaign are the uh, uh, the uh, the Salt Marsh adventures. Mm-hmm. You know, d- uh, Danger at Dunwater. Uh, why am I mind blanking on the very first one for Salt Marsh? Uh, uh, you guys know that one. Uh, Danger at Dunwater was the second one in the yeah. series. The first one is uh, oh. Uh, Matt, which one has the picture? The oh. he looks almost like a vampire in the oceans out there. Oh, it's up here. Let can't me... believe I can't think yeah. of the name of this it's right now. Anyway, uh, and then finally, the third one was the final enemy. Those are really good ones. The secret of salt, sinister secret of so, yeah, sinister secret of salt. Uh, if yeah, if you get those three, I think they make a really good intro into a campaign because it's a little different. It's not – at least the first one is not as much hack and slash. It's more of a mystery that then leads into Danger, Dunwater, and the Final Enemy where there's a, quite a bit more combat taking place at that point. But it's also – many respects it's a it's a sea adventure it's a water-based adventure in many ways because it takes place around this coastal town and you're dealing with uh sahil again and and stuff later on not in the very first one but uh it's got lizard lizard men and and lokatha and all sorts of, of neat sea creatures but it's a great you know you can you can tone it down or rev it up it's one of those kind of adventures, depending on how, how, how good your party is. And then finally, you know, you can never go wrong with the Village of Hamlet. Right. If you do the Village of Hamlet, it's probably the best intro adventure, I think, module for a campaign. And then from there, you can go into all of the different modules that form the Temple of Elemental Evil. And that, that right there is your entire campaign. Right. At least for a long time. Right. Those would be my essentials, at least for starting a campaign. Yeah, and for me, I agree with the uh, village of Hamlet. I mean, it, that's a nice introduction to here is this village, wander it and explore. It's it's not as linear as some of the other modules. It's not like you must go to point A to point B to point C when com- compared to. Uh, some of the later ones. Uh, also, there's some. Uh, once you get your players to higher levels, I think Ravenloft is something that you should experience at some point in your gaming life. Uh, yeah. At, same with Tomb of Horrors. Just be prepared to play another game because it probably won't last that long, especially with new players. And don't get attached to your. If your party is the type that literally, you know, they cry when their character dies, you don't probably want to put them through too much horse. Right. Also, uh, against the giants, that whole uh, four part. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that's another one. The G series, and G-series. I like to use the slavers to lead into that. Right. So you can actually go from the slavers A series, go into 
the uh, G series. And then next thing you know, you've you have a complete campaign and you could and that's the great thing about these yeah, old mods. The G series, you can hit the D series. You can go right into the underdark. Right. Yeah, then you the can giant. go into the Queen of the Demon web and all of that. I mean, that's the great thing about these old modules. They they have their story arcs, their series of modules, but you can ch- easily chain one series to the next series to the next series. And next thing you know, you have this giant epic campaign of from just from all these modules that because while yes they're set in like Greyhawk, but it's gen- they're all generic enough with a little tweaking. You can make it into your own world if you wanted to, and make all of these easily fit. Also, if you want, yeah, those would those would mix with Forgotten Realms. They would mix with Greyhawk. Right. You know, you can you can put them in pretty much any standard fantasy setting. Right. You can plop them anywhere, and then. There's also, if you want just something a little wacky, there is a, a module that we reviewed, the Forest Oracle. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you just want to experience something that's where your players will be like, what is going on? This makes no sense. Play the Forest Oracle. So there's a little. Or bit of- if you really want to get, if you really want to confuse your players, put them through Dungeon Land. Yes. The next thing you know, they're going. They think they're playing Dungeons and Dragons when, in actuality, they're running through Alice in Wonderland. So exactly, yes, there is all kinds of modules that you can find. I mean, there's a like the ones we mentioned. A lot of those are the classic epic ones, but there's also lots of little hidden gems. So, my suggestion: go on. Don't be. Mm-hmm. Go well, ahead. My I'm suggestion sorry. is go on to Drive Through RPG, our D and D classics on Drive Through RPG, and just browse through all the modules they post and see what strikes your interest. Because really, even the bad ones like Forest Oracle, there's still some redeeming value to. It, <laughs> Forest Oracle is one of those epic modules that you're just like, how did this get printed? Sometimes you need to experience train wrecks. Just saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah just, and I was gonna say, oh, I was gonna say, don't be confined also to just the first edition AD and D modules because there are plenty of great uh, basic D and D modules out there that can be converted into AD and D. Yes, and like you know, Palace of the Silver Princes. That's a, that's a really good one that you could convert into an introductory module. Yep, the entire B series. Amber, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are lots of a lot of modules out there for basic D and D that could easily be converted into AD and D. I'd like to go. My favorite is going is B four, the Lost City. Oh yeah, Lost City. Uh, yeah, the Lost City. Mm-hmm. That's always my favorite to go because it's that whole exploring in the desert, going to the temple, and then the the whole <laughs> the whole stone groups that are down below that you have to deal with. Well, they're not really stone, but they act like they're on drugs or something. That like always makes me laugh. Yeah, and if I had to mention probably my my favorite module that's probably ever been made, I probably would with uh, Lost Cavern or uh, with the Lost Caverns of Sajkamp. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, so that's going to wrap up Sage Advice this week. Oh, uh, right now this weekend, I believe Oswarp Dexcon is going on right now up in the northeast area of the United States, uh, New Jersey, New York area, I believe. Is that correct? I think that's where it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I'm looking at a picture that someone put up of the giant old school team dungeon crawl game. It is a 30 foot, 36 foot map on the ground with five teams racing to get the most gold to get out of the map. It's amazing looking to share that with you guys, but people laying on the ground playing the game on this big giant maze map, the big dragon in the middle. So it uh, looks like it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, of course, Gen Con's right on our doorstep, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Anybody going? I'm going. Uh, I'll be there, and it's a little under uh, 40 days away. Because it starts the 13th. Yeah, I won't be making it this year, but who knows? Maybe next year. Yeah. I keep saying that myself, so. (laughs) Yes. It it should be good times, as always, even if it'll be hideously packed considering the amount of pre-registrations they had new all-time record and another one another one uh we're they're thinking like sixty thousand or so god it, and have they gotten a new record in expensiveness for convention uh, the badge is still uh 70 pre-reg 80 afterwards um price wise it's not bad it's comparable to other large conventions Dragon Con's far more expensive. Yeah, but I heard the hotels, they just, don't the hotels just kind of keep getting more expensive? Uh, the downtown, not, if you're in the housing block, no. If you're willing to just drive, make the 10-minute drive from the airport or take the shuttle that's running during Gen Con from an air hotel airport, you can stay for a hundred and some, like $110 a night. However, everyone wants that attached skywalk and doesn't want to have to walk more than a block. That's the problem. It's kind of like at Dragon Con, how everyone wants to stay at the one hotel. That's the issue. It, it, yeah, well, gamers. If you are look at uh, if you yeah. look at a photo of most gamers, there's a reason why they want to be very close. Yes. Whereas I have no problem with a five block walk, so I just take advantage. Oh, of that. I do. I'm, I'm in. I just mentioned so yeah I'd like to be as close as possible I like being as close as possible too but however I will have no problem taking a hotel for a five block walk I got a hotel I'm not actually using it because I did actually go with something a little closer but I pawned it off on a friend a hotel downtown about a six block walk from the convention center for a hundred and sixty dollars a night with free parking so which is when most hotels in hotel block were going for like 180 to 200. Hmm. So, it, yeah, it, it's you can still go to Gen Con. It's just you had a bunch of people pouting when they didn't get the exact room they wanted. And since there's so many people wanting to go, there's far more pouting. Well, the first yeah. time I was there, it's about uh, the hotel two miles away. And while it did, I didn't really care about the walk or the ride, it was just a matter of that I had so much loot that it was a pain in the butt to carry it around with me all day long. Right. Second year, I stayed at the Westin, which is right there down the escalator. Boom, there's everything. It was much more convenient to just go to my room, drop things off, and go back to buying more things. Right. Yeah, well, in my case, when you're running a lot of games, and, and that's pretty much when I go to a convention, I, I really only just run games then then the walk becomes a problem because you're constantly if you're running like three different games in one day you're going back and forth back and forth to your room and if you're far away that can become a real hassle mm-hmm. especially if you get to a game and realize you left one of your books 
back at the room and you need it. Right. That's where large tactical backpacks and a tactical vest basically get the gear that. Oh yeah, if you remember everything. Yeah. But if you forget something, now you're having to haul butt back to your room, (laughs) and it's much if you don't have to haul butt that far. That's when an ad comes in handy. Yeah. 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 I don't like using them for rules references and things of that nature, but in a pinch, I will. So having that's what I like them for the most rules reference reading. No, I like the actual book in my hand Uh, for rules reference. Perfect. Because you can just go bleep, bleep, bleep and find something. So right. Depending on how Mm -hmm. how the PDF was. I love it when they actually bother putting chaptering into PDFs. Please. Any PDF creators. Chapter your PDFs. It makes everyone's life easier. Because I would far rather use chapters than word search. Cool. All right, cool. That's Sage Advice. You know where to find us. You know how to get to us. Just uh, hit us up. Let's go into our first segment. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table men. Are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. And welcome to Table Manners. And today on the show, we are lucky enough to have one of the the principal creator, new fantasy setting, Whisper and Venom. And that would, of course, be Zach Glazer. Hey, Zach, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Good to hear. Good to hear. So, Zach, tell us a little bit about Whisper and Venom. Can you give us a little bit of a background on on the product? And and you did that with uh, you did that in partnership with uh, John Hammerly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I wrote the initial of it years like a couple of years ago, but he and I did the editing and rewrote it from almost zero when the Kickstarter ended because it made quite a bit of money, and we felt like. <laughs> It should be the best we could make it. So it was he and I who did the majority of the reworks. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about Whisper and Venom. Um, Whisper and Venom um, is a small setting and an adventure that uh, was designed to be dropped in. So the setting itself is like a remote valley. There's not a lot of connections to anywhere else. We don't talk about gods or pantheons or anything specific to any kind of worlds. So it's kind of a generalized, fancier couple little tweaks to make it more interesting. And Adventure sells like for levels three to five. It starts uh, normally there's ruins and then you go down and there's further and deeper and deeper until it gets a little dark. And uh, it's been received quite well, actually. So we're very pleased with the uh, response for it. Yeah, I love the art in it and the writing. The writing is really good, by the way. Thank you, you very were, much. We tried really hard do- to make it a joy to read. It is. It's, it's really, if you read the book, the writing is really good. I actually just liked reading it just for the writing style. Uh, I got an idea. Now, the valley seems to be pretty big. Uh, how, how exactly big is this valley? It's funny you ask. Um, we put it real vague so you could make your own decisions as a DM as to how far you wanted to wander, how much wilderness adventure you want between the primary towns and the end. For me, it was a two-day march from the beginning of opening the valley where the uh, little settlements are until the where the adventure part contains at the very valley's beginning. So, 
Okay. So would it, if I wanted to use this for my campaign, is, is, is it suggested that the players then start in the, the – is, is like the main town – that's Whisper, correct? That's correct. So that and would be – Just to start, actually, there isn't one. <laughs> um, it was, really was designed so you could do what you wanted with it because well, yeah. the one of the things I hate the most is like saying, well, this is the way it's going to be and this is how you want to do it. If you want to wander into it from any direction, you could because there really isn't – none of the hooks that we give you as suggestions are required to enjoy it. And you can go from any direction as much as we could make that happen. Okay. So it's very open-ended. It's not railroady, but, but you know, I noticed one thing. You'd put, you'd put several different settlements, and it seems like, seems like it's also kind of a lawless land, like the nobility that once ruled, they're gone now. They're more like it's isolated. We talk about that in our next one. We're doing a Kickstarter for in September, but basically – they're on the frontier of a, like an empire, and there's a plague and a pestilence, and that was done mechanically originally just to make sure that you could put it in your own game without having any of the stuff like, you know, directly related to something within the setting. So, but it, we talk about why that is, but yeah, it's not so much lawless because they're not, they kind of keep their own laws, but they don't have any like overarching mm-hmm. authority, if that makes sense. Right. It seems more, almost, almost minor city states yeah it, it would be like minor city states it's just for composers of like 500 people yeah but no that, that's exactly what they're like and they're interwoven the three we talk about in the setting they're interconnected by a little bit of trade and a little bit of a black market trade and things like that so they're they rely on each other but not really anybody else okay who are the principal powers i guess you would say can we go through those i mean i read about them there's like the dwarves and then you have the people and whisper and you have uh but maybe you could go through a little bit about you know the powers that be in in this new sure i certainly can um well whispers is the principal village uh it's farmers and you know just basically a a little more than a peasant village because they make things like ale and they also make, you know, farm implements and various things like that. And um, the nearby village, which used to be like a sister village that was abandoned, um, was taken over by, by some lazy goblins who thought it was much easier to live in a city that has already created and create their own little place. And so they kind of took up residence and they found a still. And so they started making their own like rock gut type liquor, which kind of brought them into the trade triangle between between uh, Whisper and then Swindle and then the village of Cleft, which is the Dorf village, which is fur- further away inside of a mountain. And they, um, off their ancestors, basically selling older implements and older ironworks, while at the same time just kind of being lazy on it because they don't have as many customers. They don't have as many, much reason to do so. So they're, they're sort of, in a way more relaxed than most dwarves because, you know, they don't have any necessity to be otherwise when it starts. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Okay. So like, I love the idea of the goblin settlement where you, you have a group of goblins that probably for the time that I've seen in gaming, where you don't just try to go out and kill them all where they actually do offer a different slant on trade. I like that idea. How did you guys come up with that idea? Why did you guys decide 
you know, what was the thought process well, behind um, making the goblins? Yeah. Part of it was, is it was, uh, we wanted to have, because once it got bigger, because the adventure was going to be like a standard TSR size module, probably 24, 36 pages. But once the ideas got bigger and we kind of, we worked on it for a few months, it was like the setting just didn't seem to match the scope of the adventure. So we wanted to add a little bit more. And I always liked the idea of having a kind of like, I'm thinking about like, like pirates, but people who interact with normal people and normal trade, but in the black market kind of way. And so it was like, what would they sell? Well, it was pretty obvious. We thought about it long enough. So, you know, they would sell hard, hard liquor because, you know, that's, the kind of thing they would do, and I figured they could discover it still. There's a story in it about how the one the one smart goblin runs into the old still and makes a use and becomes kind of a hero of the town because it gives the town kind of a purpose. So it's still a place where, you know, uh, everybody's everybody's wife and everybody's, you know, girlfriend or grandma says, you need to go there, that's a bad place, don't go. Yet they go anyway. And they have the clandestine trade, and they sell them bad grain in return. They sell them hard liquor, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, we just wanted to make it a little more interesting without making right. it like, you know, a whole new race or a whole new thing you had to include that we just came up with. We wanted it to be something that was different, but you could still include it in the standard game. I see. How would you say the relationships, how are the relations amongst these different towns? Do you, For instance, how do the cleft, the dwarves of cleft, how do they get along with the, with the goblin community in Swindle? The goblins um, have fairly badly because of long memory and long history with you know dwarves and goblins because that's fairly standard RPG stuff. But mm-hmm. they like their hard liquor and they like having a place to sell some of their goods, which they do kind of in a circuitous route. You know, they kind of go in a circle to get their goods there. But it's a place to sell what they're selling because they don't have a lot of markets. So they kind of all rely on each other and kind of a balance. To where you don't have to love each other, but they kind of rely on each other, so it's like happy tolerance. So, but I think the, the the dwarves and the humans and they get along fine. They do their own trade, and every, but they're not. They don't hang out together. They don't go on. You know, they don't have common purpose. They have their own thing because they're all separated. But they they get along well enough. Right. They trade. They don't have these, but they do. They found a way to uh, a, a profitable partnership. I guess you'd say. Exactly. I think you you see that, like in real world things. You know, you may not like somebody, but if you have a profitable partnership, you'd be amazed how well you could wind up getting along, right? And that's kind of how we envisioned it, like a triangle kind of trade. You had, you know, kind of like your rum runners that were kind of ignored politely, but everybody knew that was part of the situation. Everybody understood where the money came from or where the trade came from, but no one wanted to talk about it. And so, right, right. Kind of like during Prohibition, actually, where it was kind of a. It's a lot like that. We had a whole group in there that talks about there's a temperance society in Whisper that really hates all the liquor and everything else, but they happen to be in how the liquor travels is on their little temperance wagon. So, yeah. (laughs) We try to make the story interesting, but not. It's like a group of women. Well, and a, a reluctant priest. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. The reluct- I remember reading that too. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's a unique way, also, I think, of, of creating uh, the politics of a setting because a lot of times people put out their own settings. It's, it's, it's a lot more one dimensional. You know, oh, well, this group is warring with this group because they want more power, blah, blah, blah. You rarely see a setting that is, has a huge emphasis on economic, I guess you'd say, 
uh, relativity between the the ruling parties or the powers. So that was that was interesting. Was I like that? Well, we try to make it kind of natural, and we also try to make it like once again, you know, a lot of levity because the economic part, you know, use that a hundred different ways. And if you want to change your work with the settings or have some kind of like a role playing deals between the towns and everything else, it gave you more leeway to do it yourself and make it yours. More than just like ours, because we want to be usable for as many people as possible without interfering with our own campaigns. Mm -hmm. So, could and now at lower levels, obviously, you have areas that are great for adventure. I know that there's the mountains that kind of you call them the wall. Is that I'm correct, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those probably there, and there's intentionally like there's intentionally abandoned manor houses and. We mentioned just briefly because, like we said, there's a plague that kind of depopulated the area, which gave it like its disconnect from everywhere else. But it also left abandoned areas that you could expand on and go with to make it. You could start there at the first level, then get eventually get to the actual adventure book part of ours, which is really third to fifth. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Now, after say say I'm running the campaign based out of this uh, compendium, and my characters are now like seventh level or so. They're getting to the point where they're almost name level, uh, and generally, seeing, you know, between seventh and tenth level, players oftentimes start owning property uh, and getting into the realities of life as a power themselves in some degree, whether it be owning an inn or owning a uh, castle. Now, would you say then that? that this setting lends itself to that as well, because at that point you could actually start getting into the whole uh, politics of the different areas, you know, surrounding you. I think it absolutely would do that. I think we had, we thought of that early on about what if they want to take residence. We had strongholds as much because we didn't aim for that level, but there's enough open space and open area, even with the expansion things we're planning on doing to where that wouldn't interfere with, what we write, and hopefully none of that would interfere with everybody else who and the, their own games wrote. But yeah, it's actually designed to be able to do that. Yeah, it'd be interesting if 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 a if a party were to get powerful enough, it'd be actually kind of interesting to see what would happen if they tried to reinstate a formal unified government over the over the valley. And uh, we thought of that, and the next one we're doing it's called Death and Taxes. It's a little bit about that. It's partially oh, about okay. the authority trying to exert itself over a place that doesn't want any. So gotcha. So there, the the people, <laughs> people in the valley are kind of like we've had, we've had a ruler, or a ruling party. We did that. We didn't like it, and we don't want another one. Yeah, I think it's a. That's a very uh, good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, like I said, I think it's a it's a it's a pretty original from the standpoint of of commerce and and relationships between the different areas. I think it's actually a fair original take on the fantasy setting. I like that about it. It's not your typical. Well, we're elves and and, and we don't like dwarves and we're dwarves and we don't like elves and and we all don't like we all goblins on site. <laughs> So I thought you guys tackled that in a really original fashion that I think players can really – I think you can give a lot of material for players to, to sink their teeth into, a lot of hooks out there. 
No, I appreciate this. And there's a lot we left out um, that we hint at on purpose because a lot of times things are more interesting over the horizon or with just hints. Some of my favorite like modules from back in the day would mention things either in other modules or just like an outlying thing that was occurring off map. And so we tried to make sure that there were plenty of those kind of small hooks that would make it interesting to just have NPC interactions so they could discuss things that may not be directly relevant. It gives like depth to the whole world. So we spent a long time on that just because we hoped that uh, we liked it. So we hope that everybody else would too. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And I love the notes you put in here regarding uh, the adventures themselves. You have like hearsay. That's kind of neat, like kind of like a uh, like a rumor system. Yeah, and we, we liked it. We actually we had like thirty six of them. We had to pair it down because uh, John Hammond, we thought, thought that was just awesome. He he didn't play a lot of D and D stuff back in the day. He played some. He's familiar with fantasy, but uh, he's a writer by you know by choice and an editor by by uh, <laughs> by fiat. But uh, uh-huh. he he. Um, it was really important to him to make sure that uh, there were a lot of hooks and so had as much fun as we could with the rumor table. And so, Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of, of creating hooks like that because, you know, when you got a hook, a lot of times the players will spin off of that and they may actually go in their own, their own direction with that hook, but it, in, oftentimes in directions that the GM, DM never foresaw, but are really actually pretty good. So it would be interesting to see where some players would take some of these hooks. I like to hear play reports, actually. I was surprised um, how many people actually have played through it already. And some of the stories I get back were things I didn't expect, but they were, uh, it was was pleasing to see, like, who went with what and where they wound up. It just was uh, interesting that I didn't expect when I started all of this, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you think that Whisper and Venom as a setting, I don't know, what do you think? Does, do you think it fits better in a Greyhawk as, as an expansion to a Greyhawk setting or to maybe a Forgotten Realms? Because, you know, the, 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 the mood and atmosphere of the two settings are a little bit different. I'm just kind of curious. You know, I know it could fit into either or, but I'm just wondering when you guys were writing it, how did you envision it? Well, we didn't write it in vision with either one of them. Like I said, John has no idea what either one of those are. <laughs> um, okay. And I, I'm i more familiar with Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms, and so I had that in mind. I mean, I had the map of my wall right now I'm staring at. Um, <laughs> so th- that's the one I, I grew up with. But I tried uh-huh. real hard to make it so it could go just about anywhere with, you know, without being too different. So for me, Greyhawk is where I started, so that'd be closest, but... Sure. John, uh, he had no idea who those, what those are. So, <laughs> yeah, for you then, uh, in the, in this instance, if you were going to put it in your Greyhawk campaign, uh, you know, I'm just curious. And the players who run it, they might be kind of. It's always nice to know what the or what the creator would do. Obviously, the players are going to do their or the run individual teams are going to do their own thing with it, and it's made for that. But if you were going to place it someplace in Greyhawk, where do you think you it? Yeah, it has to be north, um, in like northern hills. I can look at my glasses with my map. I would say like in the, <laughs> in the northwest quadrant, and uh-huh. uh, it would be fashioned in the top 
20% of the map because it's kind of designed to have, you know, pretty harsh winters, pretty temperate summers. You get growing seasons, but, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't like the, the breadbasket of an empire or anything. So, Right, and there's a lot of mountains. It's a very mountainous and uh, actually heavy forested area to some degree. Yeah, so that's kind of why I, that's where I see it there. But I actually, we really did try to make sure that it was good for about any classic type setting. So, mm-hmm. Are you guys thinking about putting out uh, additional supplements that might tackle? Because you have, you have ruins and, and, and maybe it'll tackle like maybe the, the prehistory eras of the valley. Um, well, like I said, we have, it's called Death and Taxes, and it talks a little more about, it's a little outside the valley, and kind of a little bit, and it talks a little more about how they got to be independent, and a little about the history of why they're independent, and what happened to their authority connections, and then why they suddenly want to come back and reassert the authority, which, you know, taxes, it's always comes mm-hmm. down to taxes, right? And so... Right. <laughs> And it's about their, their administrative area and their like kind of administrative center that they reassert control over in order to expand their authority and the reaction of the whole area about that. So, yeah, we're going to talk more about the history of the stuff, but once again, we're, I don't, don't see us naming any of the empires. I don't see us naming any emperors or kings. We try to keep it as really low-key as possible to make sure that it's usable by everybody. Okay, so now I noticed that you got Jeff D to do the cover. How how did that come to be? Um, well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to be when I first did it, I thought it would be the only one I ever did, and I wanted it to be just you know like an original one because that's what I always liked. Because mm-hmm. like back when I was really young, um, I sent away for the Dungeon Magazine writers guidelines. You know, All right. like you know, self-addressed giant envelope, and it was always like a in my mind, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I might as well try to do it with, you know, see who's available art-wise, and, um, <laughs> and I, I contacted Jeff, and he, he I'm, I was nobody, he had no idea who it was, and I, he did a, did do a, uh, the gnome, uh, Thobus, the one on the back of the book, and the one that sits through the setting, and uh, mm-hmm. I asked him, so we you interested in a cover, and he said no, <laughs> um, <laughs> he said he was too busy and wasn't able to do it. And then I was like, you know, I didn't know any artists or anything about it. And so I kind of just sat around thinking for about a month. And he wrote back and said, yes, I can do it now. I'm like, well, great. <laughs> and he goes, what do you want? And that's when I had to start scratching my head like, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, I came up with a description and he sent back a, like a sketch. And I was like, well, that's great. I love it. And then he, he did it. He sent it over and I was like, oh, that's great. I love it. And I'm, now I have it hanging on my wall. So... <laughs> Okay, and then I, I he really was great about it. He was real patient. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, he was real yeah, patient. He's a nice great I've, stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, what about now? I love the art by Lloyd Metcalf in here, too. That's some really, especially, I love the color art, too. Uh, now, did you know him prior to this project, or did you? How did you? Uh, no, I, I met Lloyd Metcalf at GaryCon um, because they ran out of seats for breakfast. If you just sit by yourself, if you were by yourself, uh-huh. and they asked me if I sit with somebody else, and I said sure. And Lloyd was sitting there, <laughs> and he gave me a card, and I gave him a little metal gnome. And then two weeks later, he asked me a question on Facebook. I'm like, well, do you have any art now? And he's like, sure. And he sent me something. I'm like, oh yes. And uh, it was great. And ever since then, he's been by far my go-to artist. He's been great. 
He oh, works definitely. quickly. He works. He works. Uh, makes great stuff. He's really, really good about making my use of the writing changes. But uh, I recommend him to anybody who wants to do a project. He's awesome. Oh, definitely, definitely. I love his picture of the giant spider too. Like you know, different people have done giant spiders. Obviously, obviously they've been drawn a lot. But but I love his. Looks like it almost looks like a, a Sydney funnel web. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the one yeah, I think I've done great stuff. Oh yeah, the creature though. I, the, when I was looking at the spiny horror, uh, that mm-hmm. one always it, for some reason it always makes me think of uh, the scene from. Have you seen the original uh, the thing? Well, not the original one. It would have been the one that had uh, had uh, I don't know that came out in the eighties. Uh, you've seen the movie. Uh, I have not. I'm familiar with it. I'm familiar with it, but I have not. Yeah, seen there's a there's real. a scene. Yeah, well, there's a scene in it where this one guy, he's, you know, they find out he's one of the alien, he's, I don't know, an alien or whatever, and his head comes off and all these little spiny appendages come out of it and it tries to scuttle off. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, that thing looks like looks like that guy from The Thing. I love the spiny whores, though. They're like little rat-like things with like spiny appendages and they're neat little, they're neat little critters. <laughs> you know, it's, it's awesome because I, the Spiny Horror and the Snag Ward in the game, those are both Matt Finch. I actually, early on, I was reading the Monsters of Myth, and uh, I contacted him and said, you know, I really like these two creatures. They're different, and, you know, can I use them? He's like, oh, yeah, go ahead. That's great. And I was like, wow, well, that's really cool. Thanks, man. And so uh, in the book itself, it, it does credit him, but he came up with the Spiny Horror and the Snag Ward, and I just love them both. So, mm-hmm. Was there any principal area of research? that you did when you were creating the different creatures and the, well, I mean, just the compendium in itself, was there, you know, where, what were your influences out there? Um, well, so the creatures, um, you know, I, I've owned every monster manual that TSR created to like 1988 and the dragon magazines. And so I wanted to make something, things that were not like crazy, like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of stuff, but stuff that were just different enough interesting for combat so gosh it drew mm-hmm. on so many influences um oh you yeah. Know, yeah like the, the one that first one i created was the atoral the six-legged venomous thing that takes you know whisper venom I, I was looking at that too and uh a basil- right. i wanted like a basilisk but i didn't want a boring basilisk i didn't want turn to stone and you know i wanted something new and so mm-hmm. i've made it kind of a, a thinner faster underground like basilisk but then it came kind of got a life of its own and everything. So they all were kind of like that. They, I wanted them all to be just, you know, different enough. I didn't want like a giant leech since we come for the murk beast and they didn't right. want the cave crickets. The came the the bird, yeah. yeah. Oh. So. Neat. They're neat creatures. I love the, I love the little creature compendium well, that you. you have. It. They're, they're really kind of neat. I want to use them in, in, in other games too. So uh, yeah, the, the, in fact, you know, what I love about the book, because it's so open-ended, you know, uh, you, because you guys did a really good job of making it generic enough that you could fit it into other campaigns, but interesting enough in its own politics that, that, the, the, that the DM who's read the book will have no problem giving great hooks within, within that area. But I, I just, you know, I really enjoyed uh, the way that you there's a lot of originality here while still being generic enough to be used in other campaigns and and I really like that so that was very I appreciate very, that that was the goal 
that was the that was the goal when we wrote it. So thank you. Good job. Good job. So uh, what would be your advice if somebody, to somebody who came up to you and said, you know, I want to do something like this? Uh, would you say, <laughs> what would be your advice? Where would be their starting point? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I'll give you like, quickly my background. Is I was sitting in a, was living in San Francisco for a while with my wife in an apartment, and I was sitting on a bus, and I wanted to Grognardia's website just from the lark. Uh-huh. I'm like, wow, people still play these games? That's awesome. And then two days later, I'm like, you know, I should just write one for fun. And two years later, I did a Kickstarter, and then it's a lot of work. I'll be honest with you. Anybody who asks me, um, if you want to do it, I would encourage it. It's the best thing I've ever done in terms of, you know, fun and rewarding. But it's do it to the standard that I wanted to see it done. It was a full-time job. And it was it was expensive before starting Kickstarter. You know, they paid for a lot of it, but... There was a lot of money, <clears throat> like involved in before the Kickstarter. You know, getting the, some of the figurine sculpts made and getting all those things done. And even with a ton of research, a couple of things come and bite you that you don't expect as expenses. And so, I recommend if you want to do it, contact me, and I will tell you everything I know. <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> I would like to see as much great stuff produced as possible, and there's a shame to waste, you know, everybody's experience. So I highly recommend if they want specifics, I'd be happy to answer any, but said time and focus were the, yeah. were the parts that really came through. But we've been really good after the Kickstarter. I've sold lots of copies of that and the Verva Feather, this little module we made afterwards. And it's been, you know, that's paying off, but it's it right. the time. And it, it, it is some 12 hour days, five days a week to make sure you meet the deadlines. Cause it was really important to us to release it on time. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. We were late with the old school version. I was about a month late on the Finder version for both for reasons kind of out of my control. But uh, doing, trying to match the time frame with everything else was, you know, like I said, a lot of work. But I, could, uh-huh. I encourage people to do it because it is great, and I want to buy more stuff. So mm-hmm. you should make things too. <laughs> sure, sure. Have how's it been since it came out? Say again, please. Yeah, I'm just curious. Now, have you gotten a lot of feedback from the players since since the compendium came out? Yeah. Um, well, since the, the box set came out, I've gotten the most common feedback I got from the box set was, "Wow, it's on time," followed by, "Oh, there's a lot of stuff in it." <laughs> and yeah, there were, I would also like add, it "Wow, it's in the box set." <laughs> yeah, and what, what that do you was think really of uh, the box set? I, well, I know I've talked to some, several other uh, game designers, and whenever I ask them, you know, about, they put out a game in a box set format, and a lot of them have came back later. In fact, uh, when we uh, we were interviewing, uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but anyway, most of the people have said to me uh, later that the box set format is great to do once they're not sure they want to do it again. How do you feel about the box set format? Well, um, well, first, I, w- I was going to have it in a box set. Once I started the Kickstarter, I realized that, you know, if I wanted to have it the way I wanted it. That's what I wanted. Sure. Um, we're going to do it again for death and taxes um, because I think it makes a difference. I like seeing it on my shelf, but there are a lot of downsides, and it's not so much the expense, though. Part of it is if you need 100 boxes, it costs you as much as it does to get 250. And so that's kind of a problem. You have to have enough, 
you know, push through for it. But the biggest problem that actually I didn't expect was selling internationally. It is mm-hmm. not a, uh, it's not an easy way to sell to both the, the, the consumer, but you know, from my perspective, because it changes what you do on customs and it changes a lot on how you can ship it and how much it costs and they have to pay when right. they get it. And it's just a book is a lot easier. And so boy, I kind of did both, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm going to do another one. Uh, Jeff Delaney is the one who recommended who the box manufacturer I used was, and they were great. I mean, they really were. They were great. So, yeah, Jeff's a really good guy. He he loaned me He's one of his uh, GM screens one time at Gary Con. It was nice of him to do. Uh, but you know, it's interesting that you mention that the international aspect of of selling the game gets really kind of complicated because it's the same thing that Ernie Gygax uh, told me about a week ago uh, in. Regard to uh, Guy X Magazine is that the international side is where things get really hairy. <laughs> so I thought that was no, kind of funny. Fix to that, said the same thing. I use a, I use mm-hmm. a, a print demand company, uh, um, one of their sub- subsidiaries. And for international now, um, if you're in Australia or Europe, um, I can get the books printed over there so they don't have to pay the import fees or anything else and they get shipped from over there to the customer. And so there are ways around it without a box set. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So. I hear you. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So talk a little bit about you have some adventure scenarios in the book. So once you're familiar with the setting, you can actually jump right in with some of these adventure scenarios that you've created. Uh, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about the adventure scenarios, how they came to be. Certainly. You know. Well, uh, you know... Early on, I wanted it to be, you know, a, a recognizable, like, dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of, it kept getting bigger because I like, well, I want to include this and I want to include that. Um, so there's an area with Undead. But it basically is about um, a change that's happening everywhere. It's about a change that no one understands that causes not an invasion so much as the appearance of an otherworldly race. And so... What happens is they have a gate portal that appears real deep in the cavern, and if changes the portal causes on, you know, the reptiles, and then again on the goblins that live there, that aren't the same ones that live in this little town, and the changes that causes kind of ripples out, cascades out, and makes slow and bad changes all the way across the valley, without anybody knowing why. And so, mm-hmm. the adventure itself is about. I guess the discovery of the source of it, of what's going on and uh-huh. how, what it takes to get there. And so, okay. So do you have a, a particular favorite amongst the scenarios? Um, I like to be honest with you. There's a, there's one where it says a local is missing and it's, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> he, it's a guy, it's a, it's a goblin guy who from the swindle, who gets uh-huh. kidnapped by the other goblin tribe and taken down below. And he, the reason he gets kidnapped is he hangs out by the bathing pool watching right. people bathe. So, he's, <laughs> so, and then you wind up finding him uh, in a bad place in pretty bad shape. But it, it's a hook to get you to go where the story goes. And it's not directly related to the demons or to anything else. It's related to the towns. And it's a, it's a small hook that leads you to something bigger. So. Right, right. You also have some really good uh, interior uh, art 
in here, like when I say interior, I guess I mean, you know, like areas of an, of an adventure, uh, ruins, you have like, you know, ruins map one and, and such. Those are really, really nicely done as well. I mean, again, it gets into the whole quality of the, of the product itself. Uh, and I'm assuming, uh, were those, those were done by Lloyd Metcalf as well. Uh, although I know Elisa yeah, interior also done were- a lot. The interior maps were done by Lloyd Metcalf, except the one that was done by me, and you can easily tell which one that was. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I have to go back uh, through it. All the old maps. Okay. It's just I, I'm learning how to map, and that's what I do in my spare time. <laughs> but uh, okay, learning a, cartography it takes talent. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. But it takes it's a lot of talent and time. It is, mm-hmm. and that's why I, that's why I farm it out. Like I was, I'm a big believer in. Look, I. I can write it with John. John can edit it. We can do, you know, those things. And I can do all the production stuff and make sure it all comes together. But to have first-class art, first-class photography, first-class miniatures, you know, those kinds of things, you really have to hire people who do it, and they do a good job. And they right. have and the layout not a track record. Nice. They have a good portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say you have a great layout, you know, whoever's yeah. – I don't know if – doing it or whoever that's was doing me. it but they're very good well congratulations that's, that's me. very <laughs> nice i actually i actually like it you know and in fact that brings me into uh one question i i won't you know keep talking your ear off but i was curious about uh i remember one time i was talking i think it was harold johnson at, at uh, gary con two or three and one of the things i was remarking to him about was the layout in the original DMG those little remember those little cartoons they had in like the corners and stuff and and he mm-hmm. was laughing he was saying yeah well you know here's a little secret you know we only put those in because we needed to cover up blank space <laughs> because they needed some filler uh, and you know i know you didn't have to do that obviously your layout is really nice uh and now you do have some illustrations down in the corners. Did you run into kind of the same issue when you were putting the layout together? Um, no, actually, but that was partially by uh, accident because Lloyd Metcalf had made so many images for me for the promotion uh-huh. for the Kickstarter and for idea stuff. And, you know, I you know, I kept paying him. He kept making art. <laughs> and uh-huh. so I had a lot of options for art to put in those places. But when you use uh, Adobe InDesign, I, I must have taken 30 hours of like an online class, basically learning how to do it. There are a lot of nice ways to make those adjustments, but having the art was immensely helpful in making it smooth. So, so the, the trick was, yeah, I paid a lot of money for art. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, there's another bit of advice for somebody who, you know, is wanting to get into game design. Uh, and with their own products is, you know, again, that's a, actually a really important bit of knowledge is, is you need to really, I, I've seen other people put out independent stuff and, and for a first time and, and the layout oftentimes knows it, uh, there, whereas the layout in this book is, is very well balanced. Uh, it's really good job. You know, it's a nice, nice binding to the book, great illustrations, great maps, great content uh i'd have to say it's a really well done well thank you you make me blush um no thank you it's <laughs> I, 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 I won't uh, yeah okay i won't i won't detract from the fact that uh, it was a lot of work 
but um, I am pleased that it came across the way we wanted it to. So that's awesome. In fact, I that's... just finished the last layout I'm doing on it. I just finished last week the Pathfinder P- uh, PDF version of it, and uh, I'm now officially done laying out Whispering Venom a year later to the day. So. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. So it's always nice to be able to sit back after something like this. You know, I mean, it's fun. I, I you know, I, I've dabbled a little bit in game creation, but uh, it's, it's, I, you know, I have a good time when I'm working on something, but it, I bet it's just a great feeling when it's done also and you can sit back and, and just watch the people having a good time with it. It is, and it is because I've the. The reception's been real good, so that really helps a lot and be able to relax about it. <laughs> but yeah, no, oh, yeah. it is. Will we be... Go ahead. No, I said it's it, it is 100. Uh, the PDF was longer, like 136 pages, and so it was a lot of work, a lot of times. But it was worth every second of it. But yeah, it does feel great to be able to sit back and go, "Wow, I finished. <laughs> I made this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so can we yeah. expect to see uh, uh, Whisper and Venom? Then coming at the next GaryCon, or what's convention you'll well, be hitting with uh, with some Venom? Well, uh, I may be going to Game Hole. I'm not sure, but I know okay. um, I'll probably be playing. Because uh, I ran uh, Western Venom at GaryCon here and in North Texas, uh, uh-huh. the short version of it, of course. And then I'll probably be doing the uh, um, the like a basic intro to Death and Tax next to uh, GaryCon North Texas. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, if you're a game hole, you'll probably see me there then. I always sit back and have well, a awesome. <laughs> All right. I'll buy the first round. <laughs> but only if you let me in on your event. <laughs> okay, well, well, I'm sure I, I can arrange that. I, I know a guy. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Vince, uh, did you have any questions? Uh, no, I think much covered it, but I did love the depth and um, how you went to each NPC, flesh them out, put names for everybody, so you don't have to actually do it yourself. And you put like an attitude towards this or that. I really enjoyed that whole entire section there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah the entire book it 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 very much gave the feel of this. You could feel this is a real world, and it highlights like the people that matter, like Ben said, and the interesting relationships between the three primary uh villages in the setting and how they're almost they kind none of them really trust each other but they each also need each other to keep their existence going so it's an interesting dynamic uh yeah it's just that a well, really thanks, we, we, that was intentional so thank you yeah i mean it, it's when you have your lazy dwarves who basically don't want to work at all and will just sell their uh back pile uh Dealing with the goblins because they got the really good stuff to drink because they're, and then you have the uh, humans and whisper just basically not wanting to admit how bad things have fallen. So it, it's a great it's a great setting that you can just plop anywhere. And as I read it, it's I can see where I almost w- want to spawn off. It sounds like what something an idea I had was. You have like your Wyatt Earp character come in, and he's going to clean up the valley. And it sounds kind of like uh, your next expansion will be that the big valley. Yes, the big valley. He will. No, it, 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 the big valley. It, it does deserve probably a little bit of cleanup too. So yeah, <laughs> right, and, and I can see the adventurers being that group sitting. You need to go clean this up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, now do it. I would love to see somebody playing a uh, playing like a Dudley Do Right paladin, uh, <laughs> finding himself, uh, you know, like entering this area, and he's like, "What? No, we shall not have any of this trade with guns." Right. And the whole town kind of looking at him like, like they tar and feather him out of town on a post. Right. <laughs> that would be yeah. whisper, not spindle. You you have a real strong temperance. Well, the town would probably tar and feather him, but you know. They need the help, but I, I'm sure they wouldn't want it. So, <laughs> or or maybe the maybe the uh, nearby kingdom did send in that paladin to clean things up, and he never came back. And now it's your job to go find him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what? Yeah, I, I can see I that too. How, I just I was thinking, you know, because because the you know the way they read these these different towns is like, no, they're not bad people they just they're not not all of them at least but they but they're they're independent they don't need some paladin coming in and telling them how to live their lives and they actually they were probably quite opposed to it so you know i, I try to make it you know for a place with little pixies and the goblins up to be as kind of realistic as possible you know they want to live their own lives they have some vices, but they aren't you know they, they're just full of vice like mm-hmm. you know most people I've ever met, but you have your own. So they try to have their own little oh, yeah. thing that made them more realistic, even though they're living in a place that had pixie slaves. Okay. So right. <laughs> they had to be people you could relate to even in this setting. So. Yeah. I love the, the uh, there's a, there's an illustration in the book of, it looks like a goblin holding a pixie by his wings. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a backstory about why the pixies want to be in the slaves of the goblins to get some, to, they are like agricultural. They get a pollen out that they use to make their their liquor. So there's an actor too, but I thought pixies were more interesting when they're actually servants. So yeah, they're easy to see dust because you could. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. I like that. Well, I tell you what, it sounds like a great game, and and, and I've read it or I've compendium i have the box set but uh you were you were nice enough to allow us to peruse you know copies of the compendium and uh, i loved it uh i'll definitely be using it in my own campaign because i think i can already think of a lot of things i can do with it oh yeah definitely you know and again a lot of people when they first put out something like this they you know they're 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 full of ideas about you know this world they start putting in their own gods and and things like that well at that point it, it makes it harder for the runner to just plunk it into their campaign because now they have to filter things out uh, you made it to where you've taken all of that work out of it the, the, you know the, the individual dms can put what they want into it they don't have to worry so much about taking things out of it and, 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 you know, like I said, it's intentional because it's a lot of buy-in for a setting that has already has pantheons and has, you know, local politics and high-level, you know, things going. You have to really do a lot to buy in. We, I wanted to see it played. Now, I thought I had some ideas that were interesting and different, but to get the most people to play, I didn't want them to have to make huge changes. Like, I didn't want my goblins were had horns when they were six feet tall or something or the elves in mine were dark sun elves and less like Greyhawk elves. You know, to try to keep it as really as 
easy to include in your own campaigns as possible because that's what I'd want. And so this is basically Whisper and Venom. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted it, that's what I put into it. So. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, one one more question, uh, my last question, but I'm just curious. When you uh, – there are some MPCs in the town of Whisper, uh, as well as some of the other towns, I believe, and, and we're, when you play-tested this, are we seeing any of your characters or any of the, any of the parties, the initial play-testing parties' characters? Um, well, not initial play-testing parties' characters. Um, the <laughs> – the gnome um, in the back of Opus is a, based on a character, Johns. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's, just, he's a filthy little character. He's not necessarily completely evil, but he has no real redeeming qualities. And John played a character like that to, to a T. And when I was first writing and thinking I needed an adversary, um, his character came to it. But none of the actual NPCs are based on anything from the playtests. So okay. they were already there when we started doing the actual playtests. So. I see. Okay. Well, uh, I pretty. I think you pretty much answered all my questions. And unless, uh, unless you, Vince or Matt, I do have something more to say. In case you are questioning, is in the box set itself. Other than the main book, uh, we do have a companion guide. We also have a companion guide map booklet. We do have a, a set of dice in here with some. Miniatures that were really well done. Did you do these? Did you mold these out yourself, Zach? Or have someone do these for no, you? No, no, uh, no. Um, I got uh, Matt Solich from Center Stage Miniatures hooked me up with sculptors that did the sculpting, and a company called Valiant in Madison, Wisconsin, did the actual casting, molding and casting. And you get like a custom box for the little, or a custom casing for the miniatures with your logo on it and even in the like as if as if this was on the shelf at say the reaper mini store it looks like, like that like i could just see the sitting on the shelf of the reaper mini store and i'm picking up going oh cool like, why aren't one of those that's how professionally done he has these done we also have well a- i appreciate it that was intentional because i wanted you know i would i have a few I have a few retail stores that sell it i'd like to have a lot more um but it's supposed to be something you could see on the shelf and take home and go, wow, I mean, this is, this is great. And that's what the whole goal of the Kickstarter was. And so, and I appreciate when you notice little things like that, because those are things that get kind of expensive, but to me, they're completely worth it because it just gives us a little bit of, I hate to say it, a little bit of class. And I want it to be something you picked up and we're happy to show on your shelf and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't really paint miniatures, but looking at that, I'd be like, whoa, I'm going to give them to one of my buddies who's going to paint them for me because they're so cool looking, some of these little miniatures. Are they different each package, or is it the same standard thing? Or what do you mean for the when you sell a box set? Um, yeah, when you have when you like, sell boxes, the miniatures are like a random thing, or are they just a standard? No, no, no. They uh, a, a retail box set uh, comes with one of the gnomes and uh, five of the, the, the goblins. Gotcha. And then uh, we have a collector's box that has all of them, and that's all the miniatures that got created in starter. Oh, and like the newest adventure we did, Burr Feather, it came with a miniature of the Rakos, which is actually in Western Venom, but the miniature never got made. And we liked it enough that we built a venture around the creature itself and made the miniature for it. So, yeah. And you also get a little dice bag with a bunch of monster cards, which I think is very convenient as well. I used to have a nice picture for them for display, and then statistics right on the back and a little information about each one of them. I like that idea. 
And if you, get, if you buy it from our store, you also get the PDF. So. Right. Correct. And you also have a full color map that you can hang up on the wall, like you were speaking of. Is that the same one that's in the box set, or is it a? No, it's a forty-two by thirty-two. Actually, the one for the wall. That one's it's almost as big as Greyhawk, but it's in one piece, so it's it's huge. It's uh, Lucid did such a nice job that it could be printed actually that size without losing any of the resolution. Oh, cool! So it's, it's a wall-eating monster. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> But the box, the box itself is the first most impressive thing looking at that because most of the boxes I've seen with Kickstarters are those, like I was telling you at North Texas, were these like cheap boxes. And uh, his box, I was like, whoa, this is actually a cool box. I can actually hit the side of the box and it's sturdy. I can stand up to the shelf of books and stuff. So and I was like, and very- it's an option when you buy the box. It wasn't that much more to get the thicker box. And it was just important to me because I wanted to have one that, you know, I have my own personal copy in 10 years from now that hasn't fallen apart because even some of the TSR boxes, um, H1, <clears throat> um, they fall apart like soon. <laughs> and I didn't like that. So like, like I said, what I cared about is what went into it. So I cared about that. <laughs> well, it definitely shows that you've cared about your product and put some time into it. So that should tell people right then and there, that's the reason why they should buy it. Somebody that cares. Well, you know, I, I appreciate it. There's different versions of it, so it could be like the compendium hardcover that you guys got. Um, that has all the text from Whisper and Venom, so you're not missing anything, you know, game-wise. But the box includes all the extras and, you know, dice bags and tattoos and <laughs> all the little promo stuff and the miniatures and et cetera. So they enhance the enjoyment, but you can actually enjoy the product for significantly less money um, with the compendium. And the PDF's for sale as well, and it, it's bookmarked, and it's not watermarked. It's, you know, chaptered. It's got the layers and everything. So it's designed to be used, and we have all available, so I appreciate that. Though I appreciate the, the kind of thoughts, and I would like to sell some more because I'd like to keep making them. <laughs> so, Absolutely. We're going to help out and hopefully pass the word along. What is the uh, – where can someone go to purchase your product? Well, then go to www.lesserknown.com slash store. And if they listen to this within five days of your posting it, they can go and put RFI 10 into a coupon code and they get 10% off. Oh, awesome. There you go, folks. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Matt, when you post this episode up, just put it in the notes to the uh, coupon code and the expiration date that uh, Zach has displayed. So once we have the show go live, we'll drop him a note. He'll activate it and you have the allotted amount of time to get your discount. Awesome. There you go. And I've been told I have a good commercial voice recently here in the last two hours, so I'd be happy to say uh, to give that. Uh, is that Chad? Web Apparently well. Chad is now on his other microphone. A, yeah, or he's in an airplane or something, I think. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, oh you know what? I'm sorry. I had the, uh, I had the <laughs> mouthpiece was up because I was drinking. Some coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Chad connecting via tin can and string. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, you can cut your cut yourself with the edge of that tin can. I've that done just, it several times. That was just a preview of the Dead Game Society. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's head into our last segment, our creature feature theater with Zach, and we'll talk about one of the uh, monsters. Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain 
into a seven and a half foot long Creature Feature Theater. And now we're in the creature feature, and we're going to talk about one of the more unique creatures from Whisper and Venom. And this is one that caught my attention and also can help explain why there's random stuff inside any subterranean area. We're talking the rubbish crab, or Zach, how do you pronounce that? Because I'm sure I would butcher it. Berg. Blurg. The Blurg. It's pronounced Ber- Berg. Ber- Berg. Okay. Berg, correct. With the Berg, it is basically your friendly crustacean that lives in like subterranean areas. And it's not really aggressive, but what it does, it has an adhesive saliva. So it builds its own armor, you could say, from the random stuff it picks up in dungeons. So as it, and it basically looks like a rubbish pile, and its primary defense mechanism is freezing in place and disguising itself as a pile of rubbish. And then every so, and then every so often, it will actually shed its uh, rubbish pile and start building a new one, much like uh, how crustaceans and uh, reptiles will shed their skin. This does the same thing. This creature, for me, it's. I can envision you have your party, you're going through it, they're in this cave, with, and there's like a pile of like garbage in the corner or whatever. They don't think anything of it. Then they see it move, and then it just freezes in place. They're like, huh, did that just happen? And you could just kind of toy with them with this moving garbage pile, and then they realize it's just, oh, it's just a little crab. And then this also can ex- be used for, we just came through this area. But now there's stuff here. Uh Uh-oh, something else is in here with us. You can make it seem like there's more, something more vicious or vile in this cave when really it's just a crab moving around junk. Because players will get, can get very paranoid when it, there's things moving that seem innocuous. And sometimes making it actually innocuous is a good thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, with these crabs also, they're they're also kind of yummy for other creatures as well. And hence why their population doesn't spawn. So this is where you actually fill in the big, evil, more nastier uh, creatures to actually devour them. And these are the things that will give the players fits. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a little creature that... Just adds to the, I think, to the ecology of any like subterranean area, and also helps explain why is this crap here? Because often, like when you read like modules or things of that nature, there'll be all this random stuff littered. Like, why is there coins in this pile of garbage? Well, now you know why. There's a crab moving it around. I could even see maybe <laughs> wizard wizards using it to like, move, like here, go clean my uh, underground dungeon. And just letting some of these crabs loose to just move this stuff around and pile it up. So, yeah. And then, yeah. And then also there's, I mean, there's lots of just good creatures. I mean, we've mentioned some earlier with the Adderall. And then the uh, one spiny horror. With the spiny horror, it's when I 
just first saw that, I'm like, okay, it's a little rat, but it's got all these weird, like, spiny things. It just looks horribly creepy. <laughs> I can imagine this running over. Like, you have a party sleeping, and then next thing you know, this thing just runs over them, and it would just totally freak them out. It, yeah. It's, yeah, it'd be fun to actually describe it to the party, too. Like, you know, you hear, like, uh, I don't know, like a skittering. Right. You hear this little skittering, and then they hear this rustling, and it's something of some size. I mean, the spiny horror is like five pounds. So, and it's got these long predators. So it'll, it would make a good rustle and noise. Oh, yeah. Imagine if you're in a, in a subterranean area and you hear a bunch of these things down the tunnel right since you can have up to like swarms of 20 of them so you just hear just uh, not to mention if you have a player saying i listen at the door okay, right you hear a lot of skittering you hear like like i don't know how you would really describe that <laughs> right but, you, you know what's interesting about this funny Go ahead. This is what I was finding horror is that during the playtest, the first and most devastating party wipe we had was a random encounter with a colony of the spiny horrors. Oh, really? So we had actually toned down the number. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh. Oh, so you originally had you like. Think Matt Finch, so. Hordes of these spiny horrors. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and the thought was, is like, you know, kind of replacing sewer rats, but when you actually play them with the number of attacks they get, it, uh, it quickly overwhelmed what we thought was a pretty fairly tough party just trying to get it done. And yeah, so we had to adjust those, but they're, they, are, they really are creepy. And the way they kind of way they, uh, they nap and the way where they hang out, it's just, eh, they're perfect. <laughs> right. I mean, they have five attacks. So yeah, they're only doing one to two, but when you have a swarm, five attacks, if you're just doing, even one damage, just the sheer volume of attacks with even 20 of them. That's 100 attacks. That could easily wipe a party, especially if they were sleeping or surprised. Yeah, and it's exactly true. But it was also just the creature itself was just, it fit really well in a disgusting place. And so we just really like it down quite a bit. Cause I envisioned it as being like a sea of them wandering across the floor and, you know, being, oh, but. That turned out to not work, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe if you tone down the number of spines, maybe you had some baby spiny horrors that haven't quite popped all of them out, so you drop their attacks, it might, you might be able to get away with uh, having that floor of, yes, the floor of newborn spiny horrors with only like two spines or something, maybe. But yeah. Another, yeah, it's, but the creatures in this book, I mean, it's something you should check out, too. These, and the thing with these the creatures, they can fit in any game, too. They're not specific to Whisper and Venom. Then, just like the, all the villages and towns can be plopped into any world, the monsters, too. There's nothing specifically tying these creatures to Whisper. So you can actually just move them around in your game. So, I mean, it's just... This is it's just a great product overall. I mean, you would be hard pressed to actually read through the, the compendium and not come away with like a thousand different ideas for your home game, even if you're only using bits and pieces of it. it it's there's just so much freshness to it that yeah, it's definitely worth picking up. Yeah, and they even add some more uh, into the mech. 
the Nexid slave, the Nexid soldiers. I love the illustration too of the oh, demonic, kind of almost gargoyle-ish looking creature. Right. And, then, and, then and also- the next thing we're the, the next part we're coming out with actually explores the Nexid a little bit more. It's a, a shorter module called the First Sentinel, and it goes a little further about the Nexid. So if you're into those. There's a little more about that coming before we do the next Kickstarter. So, awesome, awesome, very nice. Yes. So when's the next Kickstarter due out? Uh, probably um, the third, second or third week of September. Mm-hmm. Um, after my wife's birthday, <laughs> and uh, it'll run for 30 days again. Um, it'll be for death and taxes for a few months. Okay, cool. I want to be more done when I start than I am now. So, understood. It's always good to get things halfway done or at least somewhat done. So when the Kickstarter comes out, you know that people, you can have material to show people and they know that you're serious. But, you know, and we want to make sure that, cause, you know, it's just it's a big deal because you're, you're taking a lot of good faith from people on Kickstarter. And you really have to have, I got to feel confident when I go in that it's going to come as a finished product the way, you know, I'm selling it. And so I really, we've put it off. We're going to do it on April 15th because of the title. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure the time, we want to have enough stuff to twist when we get some of the art and to make it worth it. So, yeah, so the third week of September. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Zach, thank you for coming on the show and talking a little bit about the box set and the book itself. And hopefully people will go out there and purchase, purchase, purchase and buy your stuff and support you every day. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure to be on the show. Awesome. And we'll check in with you when your new box set comes out so we can take a review of that, give people the shout-out about that as well. And maybe we'll give you a, sh- a shout-out during your uh, kickstart time so we can help promote that for you as well. Oh, great. Well, thank you all very much. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we'll say keep it original, keep it old school. Good night. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. 